Welcome to Tales from the Quarter, a series of podcasts which delve deep into the social history of the jewellery quarter, the jewel in the crown of the UK's second city, Birmingham. My name is Sophie Slade and I'll be taking you through some of the stories of the women who lived and continue to work in an area that was historically known as the workshop of the world. Often viewed as mere girls, these women went on to support, strengthen and lead some of the firms which became renowned for their craft. We hear from those who were challenged by working conditions when starting their families, and others who broke down barriers as women moved to become designer makers in their own right. We begin with Wendy Alabaster, whose family jewellery firm was a keystone of the quarter for over 130 years until its closure in 2018. Located on Leg Lane, Alabaster and Wilson were purveyors of fine bespoke pieces with a special interest in animal and equestrian jewellery. Wendy joined the office staff as junior clerk and went on to become one of the company's directors. Here she talks about her role, some of the women she encountered in the office and the workshop, and her real interest which lay in horology and gemstones. When I started, I went very much as a junior clerk. I can't remember a lot of what I did. Um, we used to do quite a lot of repair work at that time particularly, and I handled some of that answered the telephone, but in those days we only had one telephone in the middle of the office and one upstairs in the workshop, so that was really quite amusing in that, you know, you had to run miles to get to the phone and then whoever was wanted, they had to come to the one and only telephone. Kept the place clean and dusted a little bit, I imagine. And that was it, yes, very much of just general office work. In the office at the time, there was my father and his brother, and then we had a bookkeeping clerk, but because it was a small office, everybody really chipped in and did everything. She did um, not only the accounts, um, both purchase and sales, but also she did the invoicing and things like that. She was quite elderly when I joined. I expect she was probably in her late 50s, so quite young now. (laughs) Um, But she was an interesting person um, in that... When she was young, she played the piano in the silent movies, which always seems slightly bizarre. And she was always quite an amusing person, too. I think she developed this sense of the ridiculous from her piano playing days. And then there were two other girls in the office, um, both, I suppose we were all sort of slightly junior. Um, One was very much a, a junior and the other one um, did um, some of the processing of the what we called new goods, which was any orders that came in um, that we couldn't fulfil immediately from our stock. She would write out the instructions for those. And then also in the office was Stephen and my eldest brother, who in theory was sort of, he and Mrs Ty <laughs> were in charge of the office, Mrs Ty being the bookkeeper and the two ladies or girls in the office as we call them then and didn't think it was awful um christine was the more senior pauline was very much the junior and that was all in the office and then we had i think probably 11 or 12 people in the workshop which was really quite a big workshop in those days i didn't venture off into the often into the workshop not us and them attitude but you just didn't go into the workshop. You used to go and talk to Mr Howell if if necessary. He was seemed slightly formidable. Or speak to Mrs Davis. Was Olive Davis was the lady who was the warehouse clerk. And she basically handed out metal to the workmen. 
She was a lady in her 50s, I expect. And if we wanted anything, dealings to know how things were coming along, it would always you'd always speak to them rather than going and speaking to the man who was doing the job. When I was at Pragnos, I'd started to do the um, gemology course. And um, so I was interested in gemstones and what you could see in them. So I enjoyed looking at jewellery from that point of view. And we did handle some very spectacular pieces then. So, yes, that was my role, very general. In 1891, when Alabaster and Wilson was first set up, working conditions in the jewellery quarter were very different to those of today, with women working in a number of domestic roles as well as in the trade. As the buildings in the quarter were multifunctional and included domestic dwellings, workshops and shopping facilities, women along with older children occupied spaces and roles where required. In the Victorian era, male and female workers were segregated, but by the end of the century working conditions began to improve. Large-scale factories incorporated tea rooms to provide refreshments for their staff, but many of the women who worked on the fly presses had tea alongside their machines. As factories required more space for machinery, facilities began to spring up in the surrounding areas. By the turn of the 20th century, employees' terms were more favourable, and companies began to take full advantage of the surrounding businesses now selling refreshments for workers. Fran and Judy Preston's mother took over the running of a cafe on the corner of Victoria Street in the late 1960s, which catered for many businesses that were operating in the jewellery quarter at that time. A real family affair, Fran, Judy and their brother Bob all helped out. Fran and her sister's recollections highlight the fact that work in the area was not just focused on the metalworking trades, and that many made their living in other ways, supporting the workforce. Well, my sister and her husband had a business in that area. It was an anodising plant. And they and the people that worked for them used the cafe and they knew that it was, well, it would close down because the woman couldn't do it anymore. And Eric, her husband, just thought mum would be good for that and uh, asked her about it and she kind of jumped at it. And my dad said, well, you could probably manage it with the support of the daughters and that. And uh, it, well, that's what she did and she did it very successfully. Uh, she'd had some experience some years before, but she took it on and with the support of us as well, we all took her time to help her out. And, uh, it was on the corner of Victoria Street and there was a, the Sikh temple was just across the, the road. And she loved it. And all the customers called her mum because we were there helping you know, out from time to time. And we'd say, oh mum, you know, so they all called her mum, didn't they? <laughs> Most of them anyway. And she loved that. <laughs> we didn't do cooked meals, but if they wanted to eat the sandwich and have a cup of coffee with it or something, then that, that's, that was what it was used for, you know. And bacon sandwiches were very popular. <laughs> I think she overdid the bacon sometimes, but they all, <laughs> that was why they were popular, I think. And um, it was predominantly sandwiches that people took out. So it was never full, but it was useful for you know, eating it in the factory while everybody's working Lots around you. Lots of people so. used to have toast, actually. The morning orders were was usual, you know, the usual bacon and egg, sausage and egg. Yeah. But yeah. there was a lot of people who had toast, I remember, because we had the big industrial cafe toasters, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, but affordable, I suppose, mm, yeah. as well. Yeah. Mum used to open up at half past six because they wanted to come in with orders, breakfast orders, you know. 
and they, there's usually a junior, you know, in these places, and they were sent round with a piece of paper and, and a pen to take everybody's order, um, and they'd bring them orders to us, you know, and we'd try and work out what it was they wanted. But no, that worked very well, actually, and I, I worked with Mum as well, and my sister, but I'd got to get my kids to school, so I didn't get in till about half past nine, you know, something similar. And uh, the dinner time orders were the were the biggest, you know. I didn't work on a Saturday, but well, occasionally I had to step in. But it it wasn't as big as the the weekly orders. It was just you know some workers who and they'd come in and just order their own sandwiches then. Yeah. But it was enough to be able to o- open, and it was helpful to them to have somewhere to come and get a sandwich. It wasn't as big um, because not everybody worked on a Saturday, but um, she she found other people that she knew very well. But I remember it we li- we lived in King Standing then, didn't we? Yeah. And there was there was a woman a few doors down from Elaine's family. Yeah. And I don't know how it came about that she came to work, but I remember travelling in to work, and she used to annoy you so much because she used to do things like she would dr- grab the um, the driver's mirror of the car. And start doing her hair. But I've got and and she didn't last very long. Because <laughs> <laughs> I should say clearly not, that you didn't go. Back. I couldn't believe what she was doing. No. You know, the bread pudding. Where you've got a cafe that does a lot of clearly bread sandwiches, sliced yeah. bread. There's a lot of bread left over at the end of the day, and of course, by then Nan had moved. We'd all moved here because my granddad died. She didn't want to live on her own anymore. So. Nan came to live with us and at the end of every day she'd be making a tray of bread pudding with all the leftover bread. Uh, It was very popular and it was very necessary because all of these little factories you know you know I think it was a happy sort of situation that we we all tried to help in and um, you know it it touched our all our lives I suppose to a certain degree. She'd enjoyed it for years and loved it. Other much-needed roles that were taken on by women included piecemeal work such as buttons and making up boxes for packing. A lot of women also took on brass work alongside these other small pieces, as most of these items could be made from home. This enabled women to continue working after having children, negating the need to miss too much time off work or lose valuable household income. However, the materials needed to do this kind of work at home were hazardous to both women and their children. Elaine Wilson works as an enameler at Deacon and Francis a renowned family jeweller on Regent Place, known for its specialist cufflinks. Elaine started her career in enamelling at Fatterini's, another well-established firm in the quarter. With her sisters and aunts having worked in the trade before her, Elaine had witnessed the reality of working from home as a child and decided this wasn't something she wanted to repeat. When she got married and started her own family, she left the trade to work in school meals as she felt it was safer. She returned to enamelling when they grew up because she missed the job. My aunt showed me first how to do it. I had to go because she used to work at home, and Chris Dad had got me the job. And he said, "Go up to your auntie Marlin's, and she'll show you, just give you an insight into it." And that was it. We did school work at first, you know, prefect badges and stuff like that. And um, then I was put under the wing of a, a lady called Iris. I think she was like in the sixties, ready to retire, and she taught me. And then I went on to, she taught me how to do the gold and silver. Only 
certain people got to do it, so I must have been okay. <laughs> so, yeah, she just taught me how to do it. I was there till from 16 to 22 when I had my first child. My first wage, my wage would have been £19.60 a week, but because it was like a bank holiday, I think I got £11 summer for my first week's wages, which was three days' work, which was a lot then, <laughs> you know, in 76. But yeah, it went up about £19.50, £60, something like that. And then when I got to 18, it was a pound an hour, so that was £40 a week. That was mega money. <laughs> we used to go to um, into town, like Bogart's, the beer killer, and then we'd end up at a little car. Now, that was my highlight of the Saturday or Friday, depending which one we went. Yeah, the whole family were around the jewellery quarter. The aunts did it at home. That was the idea of what my dad said was, when you get married, you can do it at home, but I never did. My two aunts, obviously, because they've got the children, they used to have um But they had a garage, so they had the gas and air in the garage. And they'd sit in the kitchen just enamelling. Um, no, they're not, they wasn't on their own. There was a lot, a lot of women out there. Oh, my sisters as well. Uh, Valerie, she used to do... She used to work for box pads before she went to war pits. Now that she's going back. And um, she used to bring work home. And us as children used to help her. She had this big pot of glue. And, um, yeah, she'd just put the, the foam and the velvet round. And it was just pads for boxes. And we used to do them with her as kids. <laughs> I remember that now, taking me back. <laughs> I think my aunts did piecework as well. So the more you did, the more money you got, obviously. Uh, I never did piecework. I think it was dying out when I started, so... They must have got a lot of money, to be fair. Because they was always working. I used to be fascinated and if you'd go and see her and she'd have all these trays of work just sitting there and you, you had to be careful because if you knocked them because it was just powder, she'd have to start all that again. So <laughs> you used to have to tread carefully. But it was fascinating seeing it, like the badges. And it was quite fine work and they used to work with a a point, they used to call it a point. They used to put it in the mouth as well. And it's lead, there's lead in there. And it was lead then, in all the colours. It's not today. So yeah, they must have got lead poisoning in as well, wasn't that? But it was more brass work they did, not silver. When you think about it, the whole family was involved, wasn't they? So, so there was four of us, yeah. The two older sisters, they did um, ball pits. It was pots and pans and keckles and all that sort of stuff then, weren't it? So, but Debbie, it was all this type of stuff, packing of silversmiths. So, yeah. Obviously, I got married and got pregnant. Um, I had two children, so I went into school meals after that. My first child went to school. You know, I didn't feel it was viable with the children. It, 
you know, chemicals and stuff about. I, I didn't entertain that. So I just thought I'd work round them while they was at school because I had to have the, the time off for the school holidays and things like that. So that's why I never pursued it. No, didn't think it was healthy enough for my children. When I was in school meals, it was like a lot of stress as well because, I don't know, the bookwork and all that, which wasn't a problem, but it was the other women as well. You was in charge of them and, oh, I don't need that stress. So um, I was getting fed up of what I was doing, so I seen the advertisement thought, why not? And obviously I got the job and that was it. I've never looked back really because it's just... What I wanted to do at the time. By the late 20th century, more and more women began to occupy leadership roles such as Wendy at Alabaster and Wilson. They were moving away from the more traditional hand-pressing and piecemeal work like Elaine's sisters into enamelling, silver and goldsmithing and horology. One of these women is Rebecca Struthers. Co-owner of Struthers Watchmakers alongside her husband Craig, Rebecca started off restoring watches and now makes her own bespoke pieces with new movements. Her workshop is based in the heart of the jewellery quarter and she and her husband share a building with Deacon and Francis on Regent Place. Here Rebecca discusses how her interest in watchmaking was sparked and how her passion grew at the School of Jewellery. She also tells us how donations from gold bullion dealers during the recession became key to her company's practice as they moved from restoration to designing and making their own pieces. I found horology, I suppose, completely by accident. Because, um, yeah, I ended up at a grammar school and they very much push the idea of like you're a doctor, a lawyer or a failure and it's all about sciences and um, I love science but I also loved art and I love design and I love design technology and, and making stuff but I felt really pressured to pursue sciences so I did quite art- artistic GCSEs and then all sciences for A-levels and I just I hated it. I, in a random turn of events I was an air cadet and one of the cadet leaders happened to be a jeweller and just said oh Rebecca, did you know there's a, a school of jewellery in Birmingham, literally down the road because I'm from Perry Bar. Um, you should check it out, you might like being a jeweller. So I did, and I just thought, yeah, I, I, I just love the space. I walked through the doors and I just thought, yeah, this, this is what I want to do. So um, I left school, which was very much frowned upon at the time, and I think I really scared my parents, um, and ran away to be a jeweller. And I did that for two years. Um, but whilst there, I suppose I, I missed the structure and rigidity of the sciences, so I started incorporating very, very basic automata and articulation in my jewellery. Um, and I got spotted by the horology students who approached me and asked if I'd ever thought about being a watchmaker. And at that point, I, I didn't even know that was a career option, so it was completely new to me, but I thought, no, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went into the workshop and Craig probably showed me ten of his old movements and I thought, um, yeah, this, this sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, fascinating. It's everything that I love. You're an artist and a scientist all at the same time. You're an engineer and a designer. And that's what I love about both restoring pieces and making new pieces is it combines so many different skills, all of which I feel really passionately about. So I was 17 when I started jewellery and uh, 19 when I started watchmaking. So my particular area of interest is sort of 1750 through to 1820, 1830, so the kind of 200 year old plus stuff. So 
So we do a combination of working with recommissioned movements from the bullion industry. So this is when we first started out. So when we came back here, we set up to be restorers. We didn't consider designing or making anything. Um, but we kind of noticed um, at the time it was just after the recession started, which is about the worst time to start a luxury watchmaking business. But yeah, the, the gold prices had shot up. So everyone was scrapping everything. It was heartbreaking. There were people with like Victorian tea sets in the streets, smashing them up with a hammer to melt them down. All these beautiful watches were just being sold in for the gold value. And um, you had the bullion dealers who would literally just cut them out with bolt cutters and throw them in the bin, the movement, because there's no precious metal value in them. So Craig and I saw this, and at the time, there was no recognition for how much these movements could, well, their historic significance or any other value. Um, so we started going around these bullion dealers and asking if we could collect the movements, which I think several of them thought we were balmy, but we just, we found it really sad because some of these, they're incredibly beautiful things and they'll never be made again. And the level of quality and just the attention to detail in them is far superior quite often to anything being made or the majority of things being made now. So um, we started hoarding them, didn't we? And we ended up with thousands. Um, and we got to the point we just we had so many we didn't really know what to do with them and a design competition came up um, and we decided to enter this design competition and design a watch based around one of these heritage calibers that we completely stripped back to bare bones and rebuild it with modern refinements and better decoration finishing work um, and so yeah we won this competition and it went really well and then off the back of that we decided to make more and then as restorers, um, especially the old stuff, there's no spare parts supply. So a good watch restorer has to learn to make pretty much every single component for a watch from scratch. We do it for other people's watches. And we just got to the point where we realised that we could pretty much make everything from scratch for these other watches. So why not make one from scratch ourselves? So that's where we, we are at the moment in the process of making our first completely in-house movement as well. That's kind of the three different strands to what we do, the restoration, the recommission work, and then Project 248, which is our in-house movement. Another designer maker inspired by the School of Jewellery and keen to continue developing and passing on her skills is Anna Lorenz. Anna began her working life in the telecoms industry before moving on to a goldsmithing apprenticeship in her native Germany. She now works in silver and gold, making sculptural works and jewellery while working part-time as a tutor at the School of Jewellery. Anna tells us how combining the two roles works well for her, a practice which is commonly seen in the area. When I left school, I went to apply for an apprenticeship. And at the time, so that was 1984, it was really difficult to get apprenticeships because they were quite sparse, really. Because in secondary school, I was following the technical direction, so I had lots of maths and physics, and so I wanted to progress with that. So I was looking into either a subject that was, or an apprenticeship related to that, or the other choice for me was woodwork. And both areas were really domains for the boys, uh, so I didn't get anything in woodwork, but I managed to get an apprenticeship at Telecom. So it's kind of telecom engineering without, the, obviously, the studying aspect then. And that's what I did, and I enjoyed it. What he brought to it as well was really a hands-on part of the subject. So it was theoretical understanding of uh, 
we were going through metals, we were going through electric aspects, so it was about wiring, it was about understanding how communication works. So actually, in hindsight, it brought really what I'm still working in, in some ways, together quite early on. In the class, there were mainly boys as well, so it seemed to be just quite a normal thing, really. But I realised it wasn't... It felt normal for me, but it wasn't, so we were the generations where we started to actually opt into into traditional men's or boys' uh, jobs. Yeah, and I think it was important to do so. And I did that for about two, three years. Then I thought, actually, I go travelling. So I bought a ticket to Asia. While I was travelling, I really, there was obviously a lot of time to think and to explore and to... I decided that I wanted to become a gold and silversmith. So I wrote an application letter from Thailand. I remember being on an island and I was lying in this hammock and was putting my letter together to uh, this goldsmith in Germany and sent it off and I did get an apprenticeship with him. So uh, when I came back in 96, in June, I started the apprenticeship with this master goldsmith in September which was brilliant, which was really nice. And the apprenticeship altogether took uh, two and a half years. I was called up by a, a former tutor. She was moving from Birmingham to Sheffield and she asked me if I would be interested to teach a project there in 2003, I think it was. So I went to Sheffield to teach a little bit there. It was just once a week over a term and I enjoyed it. I thought it was was interesting and it was challenging as well to actually be able to communicate a skill to the students so to be really on the other side and the school of jewelry then had a position coming up in the year after and I applied for it and because I was already you know I wasn't a youngster I was already yeah in my later 30s so I was successful in the interview and it was part-time position which meant it was uh, it still allowed me to be making because that was very important for me. I enjoyed the actual being with the students and uh, starting the students off and showing them what they what they need to do, what they need to look at. I think when it comes to uh, uh, the technical aspect, I tend to be quite strict because I think it's very important to learn it properly. So in the final year, it's obviously much more about communication, about uh, the subject the students want to work with, less actually showing processes. But I think, for me, the, the aspect of all of the three years is really encouraging the students a lot and, and supporting them and you know, helping them to gain confidence in what they want to do. And yeah, I enjoy it. It's, it's good. My own work is really important as well. So I don't think I wanted to just teach. No, I need to have my own. That was really very clear from the beginning. I think they are two separate aspects. But when I make, I think just the constant involvement with my own practice obviously feeds into my teaching because... It means I'm, I'm up to date, I know about things, I develop new work, I develop new processes. So I think it feeds in. I think the teaching challenge, challenges me 
in order to think about how do I explain, how do, how do I get elements across, am I clear with it? Uh, I have to be just aware that I'm good with my time so I don't let the teaching cut into my personal time too much, which sometimes can happen because you know, dealing with, with students you can't just go, actually, time is over, I'm not interested, it needs to be followed through really. Uh, but I think they, you know, it's good to be making and exhibiting and I think for the students it's good as well to see that actually their tutors are engaged and they are, you know, they're practicing and they try to practice what they preach. <laughs> the People's Archive is an oral history project which explores the past and present experiences of those who have lived and worked in the Jewellery Quarter. Tales from the Quarter is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for Jewellery Quarter Townscape Heritage, which is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thank you.